From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Uh, and that was a good one. It wasn't <laughs> and first time for John Scuffney. So that sounds like Shannon Blanc. I remember my first time. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome to the winemakers. I'm John Myers with Bart Hansen and Brian Casey today with John and Reed hey John. Scuffney over at Lang and Reed. And we are in the beautiful town of St. Helena. And I have to say, I love this place. It's this is what we used to do when we were out here being tourists and now i live in sonoma i mean this is definitely a change of venue for us um normally we're out in the back of sam's uh tasting house sam said hello by the way right. um they're canning wine today nice um, canning, not bottling. Uh, yeah. primitivo rosé and white blend and it's also it's 420 day yep, and right. if you know anything about sam then you, you know, know today's 420 day. Day. <laughs> yeah, well i mean it is it is no, a bottling day right so hopefully keep your well sam doesn't put his fingers any into any machines we all know that anyway. what's fun about what's fun about canning is as soon as you figure out how to bottle somebody says hey let's do cans and then you have to learn everything over again how hard is it it's it's different uh depending on uh if the wine's slightly pressurized it's it's just a completely different ball game um because the the cans have to go on at a perfect fill you have to get the turger pressure right it's uh it's a very interesting uh it makes bottling look easy i'm glad i'm not doing it today. Yeah. <laughs> so and well, lang and reed to date has not done any canning no, no, no. <laughs> well, I was going to say, how did you learn? Because I, I, I was looking. I didn't see cans on the internet. Right. So. No, so uh, in 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 a, in another life, uh, we've done some canning at some other wineries, uh, and cider included. Cider is much more complicated because you actually have to go to can pressurized. Um, so you have a pressurized line, which you don't normally have for wine. But uh, yeah, we've done some some canned wine with uh, with good success. You know, it's it, again, it's just a different beast. Yeah. Yeah. I, I looked into it very early on and um, it, it was more complicated than I wanted to get into. Yeah. I, I know how a cork goes in really well after all this time. Um, and I feel really comfortable with a cork going in. So um, we're going through right now and we're pouring these first three wines. Um, why don't we start with that first wine just to start the conversation that you poured for us? And to get a little uh, juice flowing. Sure. Yeah. Right. Take, to loosen us up a little. Get, get the coffee breath off. What are so, we drinking, Dad? This is the 2020 Mendocino Chenin Blanc. Um, today, we're actually debuting on you guys. We'll call you our crash test dummies here. Perfect. Uh, we did two bottlings of the 2020 Mendocino. So the first wine on your left is, I would not call it our standard, but it's been our regular bottling that we've been doing of... Uh, the Mendocino uh, Shannon from the Sterling Norgard Vineyard since uh, 2013 when Reed and I started our first collaboration. Um, Reed and uh, my other son, Jersey, which is the Lang part of Lang and Reed, they've helped all along from the beginning when they were preteens, you know, I have them come scrub barrels with me, you know, roll, That's the way to do roll it. things out, Sell and, rat. You know, uh, hand bottling in the garage on Saturdays, that sort of thing. But, uh, when Reed finally uh, picked up the gauntlet to uh, become a winemaker back in 2005, uh, we'd always sort of thought at some point 
you know, if we could figure out how to clean the garage together, we could probably figure out how to make wine together. I think so. <laughs> so I mean, Reed, you're the winemaker on this. Well, uh, I'd say 100% collaborative uh, on the, the ladies in back. My wife and my mother. It's um, a they're team kind of effort, important. man. Yeah, like they they would they would say that on paper, but that's uh, credit goes to dad for okay. starting this whole thing. Well, yeah, but somebody's following through. <laughs> it it, it, it kind of started. It started out with uh, you know he'd been making Langerie for quite some time, a decade or so, 15, 15 years ish, and then I had uh, hit the ground running in '09, uh, just after doing a couple harvests abroad, uh, New Zealand, France, here in Napa for my first year, and then uh, I knew how to make uh, or I had figured out with enough confidence to make barrel fermented Chardonnay. He and I both loved Chenin Blanc in the, in the Loire style. So a little fatter, a little more full bodied. I'm with you. Yeah. Generally more, generally barrel fermented. And, um, it was, it was kind of nice. Uh, we, we literally were just like, let's, let's try to find some Chenin. It took us a couple of years. It did. We got a little bit, we didn't even get to press it off. We just bought the bulk juice, non-fermented and, and you know, poured a tanked it up and, and Growing crossed our fingers. We had it. Yeah, had to, had to find white barrels for the first time. That's kind of tough. Yeah. You know? interesting. Yeah. Well, the, the Loire style is something I'm really into. Where did you go in France to harvest? Um, well, so I worked uh, in 2008 for Domaine Bernard Baudry. Um, they're longtime friends of our families. And uh, Mathieu, the, the, the son who's now uh, at the helm of the winery, came out here a couple years prior. I can't remember. 98. 98 and worked harvest uh, down at Bouchain, I believe. Mm -hmm. And lived with my parents for a minute. And it was always this kind of like, send your sons out, uh, return favor. And I took them up on it. And they were like, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? So my fiance, wife now, uh, we moved into the winery above the garage and worked to harvest. It was awful. I had to pick grapes. Like, there wasn't any cellar work. So I had to pick grapes the whole time in the rain. And uh, But it was fun. Made some great Shannon. Good memories. Yeah, didn't yeah. speak French. Figured it out by the end of it. It was good. I get a I get an email from Reed. Uh, they, I knew they were taking side trips, and you know, Vouvray is like what twenty miles away. Yeah, yeah, miles away. Yeah. A I get a nice area. I get a little note from Reed saying, "I think I finally found Megan's muse." Uh, you know, we went to that's Ouet. my wife. We went to Ouet, uh yesterday, and she just totally fell in love. And I thought, oh yeah, that's kind of like having. Peter Michael be your refrigerator Chardonnay is to start it away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah no. <laughs> it, it, Everything over there, you know, it just seems like we we attach a label to French wine that mm -hmm. is something all all of it's fantastic. You get over there and and it's just a, it's a normal business. It's a normal part of way of right. life for everybody. And I just like going and hanging around the Loire. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful. That's my place. favorite spot. Yeah, yeah. When you think about all the great, even you know, every area has three cheeses at least. But do they all have cows and do they all have goats or sheep? There's a lot in the Loire. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that's always a basis point. Well, for we go where Bart and Terry did your honeymoon. Yeah, and so we we've stayed there several times. The Domaine Haut de Loire, I believe it was called. Okay, it's um, outside of Blois. Okay, okay yeah. sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we spent uh, four or five days there, and then we spent some time in Burgundy. Um, I wish I knew now about the Loire than that. I, I wish I, what I know now I knew then, because we spent most of the time just driving around trying to find things. Yeah. And uh, we ate very well. We drank very well, but... We really didn't see anything. Yeah, we're it's trying to figure out what side of yeah, yeah, what side of the river right? or how to get across the river. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty vast area. It's it about is. 350 miles long when you think about the far eastern corner, which is Sancerre and right. Puy, and then stretching all the way out to to Muscadet at the at the ocean. It's about 300 miles long. 
We and we had driven from Bone, so um, we started in Sancerre and then made our way west. Right. Um, over that well that first day and mm -hmm. um yeah sancerre was spectacular i loved sancerre um, yeah. yeah it's, it's all flat and then you come across this one huge mountain and it's right at the very top yeah. I, I think that's when, great, great I, urban I, I think more than anything else that i was caught up with there was and and again wish i could have explored them were the caves mm -hmm. and the people that live in the caves along the river mm -hmm. and, and the troglodytes the troglodytes, the troglodytes yeah, yeah. It, it, it's 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 a stark comparison to even even the other people living in France, because most of the houses in that area are made out of the stone from the the, the tufa stones from right. the hillsides. But there's people that live in the hillside, and it's it's kind of Flintstoney. It's very cool. I have a very distinct when I'm when we're tasting Shannons from from the Loire, uh, I have a very distinct bead on if there's any kind of mushroom element to the aromatics. It's definitely from Samoa, mm -hmm. you know, and it's the same sort of thing. I don't know if it's because the rocks, you know, in those caves, they were also growing mushrooms or the mushrooms are there or the mycelium hit. But right. I, nine times out of 10, I could take that marker marker and, you know, and, and win, win that gunsling and say, oh, I think that's a similar. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. And if it's not exactly somewhere, it's pretty darn it's close. It's pretty close. <laughs> right. So can we can we go? I, I, I want to come back to your time in France and, yeah. and you're getting into the wine business. But I always like to bring it back to. You know, you guys are from the Midwest. Um, uh, I think you wear that badge very proudly. Um, you found your way out here to California. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, coming out here and, and what brought you guys out? Sure. From Kansas City, right? Yeah. Originally, Tracy is a, sort of a native of Kansas City. I'm a, a wandering Midwesterner. My father worked for Ford Motor Company. So we moved around like a military family. So I was born in Detroit, grew up in Minneapolis, Chicago and Kansas City. Uh, big stint in Minneapolis. So that's one of the great things of living in California is we can watch it rain and we don't have to shovel it, you know, after there. But <laughs> Oh, I'm from Chicago. Uh, so. And it's even it's even more difficult winter there because it teases you. You know, it says, okay, one nice day, one bad day. In Minnesota, it's always just cold in the winter. Anyways, um, both Tracy and I, we met in high school but started dating in college. Tracy was uh, studying uh, biology with a botany emphasis. I was in art school. Of course, doing that, we both had to make a living and wound up doing that through restaurants. And we just worked in better and better restaurants. And even before we were out of uh, college, we were both working in a restaurant in Lawrence, Kansas that actually had a wine list. And this is in a state that liquor by the drink was still against the law. Uh, there were some provisos for private clubs, and that was what we were. And uh, isn't that I, strange? It yeah, is. That, you know, I just came across my uh, the first wine list that I ever completed was in the spring of 1977, so that was 45 years ago. And uh, the Bordeaux page had uh, about six selections. There were actually three pages of Bordeaux, but of the six selections, there was 1970 uh, Petrus for $19.70. Whoa, okay. And 71 uh, Latour for $19.90. Why there was a 20 cent difference in them, I have no idea. But now I always <laughs> remind people that you had to pay for the setup too, so you had to have $3 added on to that. So it wasn't the bargain that it sounds like. <laughs> we, right. sounds, sounds pretty good to me yeah you know somebody said oh i'll take a case you know uh, <laughs> do you remember what what um california wines were on that list yeah sure you know um i had clodoval cabernet on the list yeah. uh, there was a crazy broker who was trying to sell boutique boutique was the word at the time mm -hmm. 
Uh, so we had, and it was about $9, which was pretty expensive for a California wine. Yeah. We had to sell it at retail. We were not allowed to make a, a profit on it through the restaurant, huh. uh, except for the setup. Uh, so it was probably about a $9 retail in Kansas. I had uh, uh, Camus's Clodeval, or Camus's uh, Oie de Perdrie, the Pinot Noir Blanc. Um, I wound up working for them later on when we moved here. Um, there was a lot of Mirasu, uh, some Wente. Uh, yeah. There was, you know, the house wine was Gallo Chablis Blanc, yeah. uh, which was not a great buy because he still had to pay the setup. So any Kenwood, you know, I didn't. I, I could look again. We actually, you know, we might have had some Rodney Strong at one point, um, or uh, Sonoma Vineyards, which was uh, still part of that right. com conglomeration. Right. But I don't remember any Kenwood then. I do. When we got to Kansas City, Kenwood was become, well, by then, the, you know, the artist label was starting to gain some traction and such. Huh. So after Lawrence, we got married in Switzerland, traveled in Bordeaux, Champagne, a little bit of Germany, uh, came back uh, living in Kansas City, and both worked in the fine dining business. And Tracy wound up in 1987 being hired as the assistant wine steward of a restaurant that had a really great list called Plaza 3. And a year later, they offered the position of head steward, and she was working at another restaurant as a maitress d, and wanted to stay there. So she said that she would pass, but knew somebody who would really love the job, which was me. So I became the head steward of Plaza Three. It's this. It's what we used to call sommeliers. Was wine stewards in Kansas City. They didn't use a lot of French. Yeah. Um, and it was a cool list. A lot of German wines. Uh, there was more imported wines than there was domestic, for sure. Yeah. What was the food like at Plaza 3? What Plaza genre? 3 was a continental steakhouse. Okay. You know, it was Kansas City. So steak soup, everybody got a bowl of steak soup and then you ordered your steak. <laughs> or, you know, there were continental. You know, it was not a lot of table side service, which Tracy and I both had worked in. I was a captain at a French restaurant beforehand. Uh, but it was a hot restaurant. We mm -hmm. sat about 500 people and could turn it two and a half times on wow. Saturday night. It was huge. The discotheque in the basement, Houlihan's old place was next door after hours drinking nice it, we made a lot of money we yeah. sold a lot of wine i'd have cabernet <laughs> night if the ophthalmologists were in town and for convention we'd, <laughs> we'd have what we call cabernet night you know i had 1970 bv private reserve on the list for like 32 dollars yeah. and they kept a stock because we the house wine program was inglenook and plaza three was owned by a restaurant group that had 180 restaurants around the country called Houlihan's old place so we had a huge amount of buying power and co-brand and all these importers would come and to sustain the business at Houlihan's, they'd give us whatever we wanted. When I left the restaurant trade to move to California, the last thing I bought myself for retirement was a Magnum of 1975 Chateau Chem, and the tag is still on it. It was $62. I still have it. We'll drink now, some. Now, wait a minute. You have not opened it? No, no, still have it. Yeah. it it's it, a problem. <laughs> and, and what is, I want to know not what the plan either. is. What is the game plan for We're that? We're going to wait till 2025. Because? Just that it'll be 50 years old then. Okay. You know. Okay. We did just a, f we celebrated our 25th anniversary last year, but we actually had a small celebration here at the CIA in February. And I, yeah. the first wine I ever put to cellar was a 66 Aubryon that was given to me by a chef that I worked for and uh, on my birthday. And I, that was the day I said to Tracy, I said, we can't drink all these things. we got to save them. So and Doug Frost came out from Kansas City to help us with the event. And uh, we went to Farmstead afterwards. And we had 66 Obreon and uh, 1972 um, 
Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, reserve. It reserve. Was, yeah. Uh, both of them were fabulous. Yeah. And to me, it was a testament. I thought I'd never, I thought I'd die before I drank it because it was the first Keystone bottle in my collection. And knowledge was down a little bit far. Yeah. And to me, it proved that my wine storage since 1978 has actually not been too bad. I was going to ask because that's tough <laughs> when you're moving around a lot. I mean, I've had yeah. wine that I've stored under my, my mom's bed at right. certain points in my life for different reasons. But, but yeah, you must have done a pretty good job of storing I, it. Accidentally so. Uh, yeah. So in 1979, Tracy and I made our first trip here to California, and I was sent out to look for a new wine program because we recall, in the, even all the ways into the early 80s, wine by the glass really didn't exist. It was all house wines, and we were serving Ingelnook, and it Wait, was made. Can you can you explain that? Because I think a lot of people will think that's strange. So explain what that means. Well, a restaurant would not have a wine by the glass program. You didn't open up a bottle and pour a glass out. Maybe ports, you know, ports or right. fortified wines. We would so they'll do keep that. for a while. Yeah, yeah, but regular wineless. We had more half bottle availability in those days. So that's yeah. where we we would populate the list with a lot of high quality half bottles for that purpose. But what was the reasoning behind that? Because they didn't think that. Uh, was well, it there were no preservation systems and. Right. The idea of an unbranded bottle going to, you know, wine wasn't, this was cocktail era still, you know what I mean? Right. I had a great experience at Plaza 3 one night. Two guys came in, businessmen. One was older than the other one, and they were early adapters. And they, the young guy ordered a half bottle of really nice white burgundy and then a small half bottle of a really nice vintage Bordeaux. And for that, I brought out a glass of 63 Quinto de Noval for them at the end of the evening because they were early. And once you put a bottle on a table, it populates the rest of the restaurant says, oh, we got to have wine, too. Yeah. So I was kind of thanking him. And the old man grabbed me and he says, hey, young man, he said, he says, my friend here is the wine geek in this group. He said, he says, you have a really nice wine list here. He said, I'm on the spirit side. He said, so it wasn't too long ago that we were the doctors and you guys were the chiropractors. <laughs> <laughs> Because the business was changing. Yeah. You know? So I was sent out here to explore whether or not we could upgrade our house wine program because we were doing 18 liter bag in the box through a Coke machine pumped up through oxygen about two miles away in hoses. It wow. Was and Robert Mondavi had come out with Bob White and Bob Red in a Magnum. We thought we could pour from a Magnum. Behringer, we did a lot of business with Behringer. They wanted their, they had their Los Hermanos brand. They wanted to get that business. It was a lot. It was 40, 50,000 cases a year through the restaurant. Yeah. So, but I got to play while we were out here. We got, when, the first place I tasted wine was at Inglenook in the little yellow house, the child's house. Yeah. 15 years later, it was my office. One Friday, we went in the morning to Clos de Ball. We had a morning tasting with Bernard. I started working for him in 89. At noon, we went and had uh, lunch at Chateau Montalena on the islands. Nice. Yeah. In 1980, I worked for the company that did their national sales. Uh, we're going to their 50th anniversary in two weeks, which is really cool. Wow. And then in the afternoon, we went to see Chuck Wagner at Camus. And yeah. uh, we had a great visit. It was the end of the day. We get back to Calistoga at our cheap little motel. And he calls and says, hey, you know, my wife and I are coming up to Calistoga and you want to join us? I wound up working them for them. That was the first winery I worked for when I moved to Napa Valley in 84. So these were all relationships that were formed when you were- Beforehand, yeah. Beforehand that you were yeah. just happened to be buying and serving the wines. Yeah, I had never been to California. Uh, I bought a case of the 1975 special selection retail from Chuck when we visited. And I 
I then did a, like a Les Amis divan dinner at the restaurant and kept the other four bottles myself. And, yeah. uh, you know, it was that kind of thing. So, so did, did the relationship that got you out here, was it that, did you come out here and look for a job or did a job come looking for you and, and you moved? Well, about a year later, uh, I came out again we, this was in May of 79. I came out again for the Monterey wine festival in November and then came and spent a couple of days up here. And I went home and I said, honey, you know, we've always talked about going back to Europe, but I'm linguistically challenged. So that's an issue, so you know, maybe California with the place we ought to go. And, uh, so the next summer we packed up, uh, in July and came out here looking for a job and I landed one and we moved out here on August 20 of 1980. And it was not exactly what we were looking for because it was in San Francisco, but it was a company called Vintage Wine Merchants. And hmm. we did the national marketing for Montalena, St. Jean, Sutterhome, Stonegate, Raymond, McDowell, Concanon, Parducci. It was like going to grad school. And what was your marketing. position? I was the, it was a new department. It was called the Marketing and Sales Support Department. So. I was working with all family wineries. Parducci was the only one that wasn't solely owned by the Parducci family because TMI was an investor at that time. But the rest of them, the Marzonians still owned St. Jean. And of course, Jim Barrett was running Montalena. And, and, you know, for our listeners out there, the era he's talking about is all those brands that you've heard of. Those were all owned by family businesses, oh, yeah. just as you said. Yeah. It's now that they're owned by large corporate. Sure or if they even exist. So how does this time work out with judgment in Paris? Uh, this was post, uh, you know, that was in 76 and that did definitely have an impact that suddenly we, California wine was the cause celebrity out in the marketplace. And there were two small fine wine, or there were three small fine wine marketing companies like ourselves. Um, one was a guy, uh, guy named Ira Gorvitz, and he was the guy I had known from Kansas who was selling me the Clodoval and the Camus and that sort of thing. And then there was Wilson Daniels, who had no imports at that time. Their main thing was, their main thing was uh, Cuvée Saint and Chapelet and, and uh, yeah. those brands. And I knew Jack Wynn really well. I still see Jack every now and then. But there was like this group, the distributors really wanted sort of one-stop, one-stop shopping and we weren't really acting as brokers. We were out there actually promoting California wine. We used to make a vintage card every year. We were pretty much isolated to North Coast County. So we would write, you know, we'd get Parducci to do, Parducci and McDowell to do Mendocino. We'd get uh, Dick Arrowwood to do Sonoma. We'd get uh, Jerry Looper to do Napa. You know, the Raymond boys would put in their jokes and stuff because they were, you know, they were just, fabulous to work for. Chrissy Raymond lives across the street from us now, so I get to see Walt pretty regularly. Cool. But I also, my dad was just blown away because having financed my art college, uh, I actually, <laughs> I actually... Which you were putting to great use. Yes, yeah, which I actually so. was because I was hiring writers. I was hiring artists and photographers. I, I wrote back copy. There's still wines out there uh, that, that have my copy on the back. Wow. Um, I helped proprietors figure out if they needed a label change or if they, you know, uh, I got to meet all the journalists. I had Norm Roby wrote copy for me. Jim Lobby wrote copy for me. Uh, Millie Howie, if you ever remember yeah. Millie yeah. Howie, because we were, go they were all ghostwriters. They, they yeah. weren't making any money selling articles to magazines. So uh -huh. it was great. And Reed was born in the city in 83 and it came to, uh, it seemed really apparent very quickly that it was very difficult raising a kid in the city. And, and that was in 1983. Yeah. yeah. So 
in uh, the fall of 83, I had come up here, Auberge de Soleil had just opened and there was a, a one iteration of Napa Valley magazine. And the guy who was the editor wanted to do a Tete de Cuvée champagne tasting. So he invited me to join the tasting, which of course you don't say no to that. Yep. So they were really trying to advertise Auberge de Soleil. I had, you know, it was about 12 of them and I had a bit of a buzz before I was driving back to the city and it was a cold, rainy November. And I stopped by to say hi to Chuck Wagner and uh, he started to talk to me about wanting to take over the sales and marketing from his dad, but he didn't know how to do it and that somebody owed him a lot of money. And um, we wound up making a deal and we moved here on his birthday in February and I started a five-year stint with the Wagners. Wow. Wow. And that was the national sales and marketing director there. And then spent three years with Claude Duvall and then four years with the Nibon Coppola estate after that. Hmm. Tracy used to joke that that was my last legitimate paying job was working for Francis and Eleanor. <laughs> we stopped going to Tahoe after that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right about that. <laughs> you I used to be really good to, at skiing. Yeah, <laughs> you and your brother had to get this takeover in the same room. Yeah, so yeah, office. exactly. Yeah. 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 Care, careful about those passions you chase. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so... Uh, God, that that's an amazing like amount of experiences and um, group of people that you were surrounded yourself in. That's very cool. Um, and so can we go to, well, first of all, uh, we'll, we'll depart from that for a minute because I've got this all screwed up anyway. <laughs> the Chenin Blanc mm -hmm. um, is a new addition, fairly new addition to your winemaking. I mean, yep. when you Lang and Reed started, it was just Cabernet Franc. two Franck. different Cabernet Francs started in, legally in 96 i made the prototype in 93 okay so maybe what we should do is talk a little bit about the shannon blanc since we have them in front of them okay. uh, so we started with the first one but why don't you guys both jump in on the other two and you can talk a little bit more because i think you brought kind of the you you brought the shannon blanc to the table for for adding it correct? yeah so um in our first class the 2020 mendocino shannon blanc from the talmage vineyard up in mendocino just kind of just outside of redwood by dharma's buddha Buddha's Dharma, yeah. I said that right. And uh, you know, so we started that in thirteen. That was our first vintage. We had eight barrels or something like that. And we always knew that we were gonna not knock any barrels out. We we're gonna use it, but we decided to really experiment with yeast. So we did some native barrels. We did some, you know, one or two barrels. Got a scoop full of a certain yeast, kind of whatever was free at the winery I was working at at the time. And uh, and it, it really turned out well. We've had some the other day. That's my dog. It's perfect. It's yeah, perfect. we have dogs all the time. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> we got a, we, an eight-month-old puppy in the house, so we're learning how to have dogs again. And uh, and so this is the this is the same vineyard, same wine, same block. Uh, seven years later. And and is this vineyard head pruned? No, it's not. It's not. It's on no. a trellis. Yeah, it's on okay. a trellis. Um, it's, it's about modified. Forty years old. Okay. You know, in true like you know, Mendocino County farming, you know, right. it's, it's alive because it wants to be, not because it's been oh. taken care of. Right. Um, it started out as cordon and then they mm -hmm. went to cane. So it's a modified cane, but it looks head pruned. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but it's, it's on wire. It's pretty bushy. Um, yeah. You know, it's, uh, Shannon's a producer and this one gives us about on a good year, four tons an acre, which is pretty low for Shannon on a bad year. It's a ton or two, um, but we love it. And, and it, it, for us, it exemplifies uh, Shannon with character. You could, there's a lot of Shannons out there that, that, that lack the, the umph behind it and with little intervention or lots of intervention it gives us the wine we want and then the the wine on the right is the same wine but uh um some select barrels that we actually chose to bottle separately 
and so it's it's got a little bit of more oomph to it it's yeah. uh it's a 50 case run there's one new barrel one very used barrel and it just had the it had the textures and mouthfeels yeah. that we like to it and kind of went on a whim and decided to do a reserve i hate using that word but that's essentially what it is i mean it's interesting because it um it definitely shows the oak mm-hmm um, really uh, nicely, but it almost showcases the raciness of the acid um, yeah. in, yeah, in that wine, which you would think it would it would actually subdue it. Yeah, um, But it actually kind of showcases it. This was a definite leap of faith for me. Uh, I really had to sort of rely on, you know, the experiences Reed had had with applying, you know, what I'd call a really sexy barrel. Uh, but we did one Francois Ferrer. Mm-hmm and one Stockinger that was about three or four years old. So the Stockinger gives nothing up at that stage. I mean, it's really tight, very neutral. And coming together, the, it re- I think it really helped it because it's, it, it sustained sort of the, the elemental fruit characteristics that the regular bottling has. But then there's this sort of varnish layer of the wood that comes in. Um, we really, we're not sort of thinking white burgundy when we're making Chenin Blanc, but we're thinking of the techniques that they apply. Mm-hmm. Um, the three the three or four different yeast cultures, we basically in any one year have one, two, five different fermentations going on simultaneously. Cause and and we're, the, we're talking about a barrel program of the 14 barrels total. So right. of, it's a barrel of one yeast, two barrels of another. Right. And, um, and it's, it's fun. We know it's going to go into the same, but kind of gives us something to do. And every year we, we blind taste... All, all the yeast strains and knock one out and add one different random. Okay. So you that's know, what I was wondering. Is there, is there, a, are there specific ones that now you feel comfortable with and then you're looking for other ones or is it always seem to be rotated? Two, two have become standard. One, we're, yeah. one we keep in rotation. And do, do you want to share who that is? Yeah. We, uh, sure. CY 3079. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just a, a workhorse of a Chardonnay Lee, uh, yeast and then VL1 or VL3. I can never remember. VL3. VL3, a Sauvignon Blanc yeast. And so what we think it does is, you know, the CY3079 really bumps that, that mouthfeel and the, the, the textures. Um, and then the, the Sauvignon Blanc yeast, the VL3. Keeps the fruits. Up keeps the, the high, the high tensile notes. Cause this, it, it's nervous wine, you know, pardon yeah. me. I'm cough it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's nervous wine, but it also has, um, a playfulness to it that's attractive. The uh, the one that's not in this one, uh, but the one we utilized this year is a, a newly, they're really geeky designer yeast. They're all G- non-GMO organic. But in 2022, we applied this, uh, a champagne yeast. And, you know, we've all used Pre de Mousse for years, mm-hmm. which is a champagne yeast. Is, and it's a real neutral base for wines. And, um, this new one was actually pretty exciting. Yeah. Half the cuvee still remains barrel fermented. So the, the, the inoc- inoculated Shannon's finish pretty quickly, usually by about Thanksgiving. And then by Christmas, the natives are pretty much done and mm-hmm. they will determine the residual on them. And it's been as low as 0.4 and as high as six yeah. grams. And, uh, and so you're just good with those numbers. Yeah. 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 And, and, and when the, you know, ML is happening naturally, um, it's a pretty hostile environment that the, the acid's high, the pH is low. Um, but you know, we try to go for as dry as possible. And, and what's kind of nice is the, the yeasted side, um, generally finishes quite quickly. It's a, again, it's a, it's a low alcohol wine and it'll go through a little bit of ML. We don't really track it. We just let it happen. And then the, the native side will will lag for a long time or a short time again year to year 
this year was quite laggy. And uh, this one, they finished at the same time, like yeah. within three weeks. It was yeah. like, whoa. Yeah. And know? so it, it's nice because we know it's going to turn out well, or we hope it's going to turn out well. We have, you know, seven years of it turning out well. And it, it, it adds a little kind of a free, free radical and exponent to it that we, we never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Unfiltered? Yeah, non-filtered, yeah. We have in the past, occasionally. The one at six grams we did. Okay. Um, that's yeah, usually, that was what I was looking at. Yeah. And that's actually easily one of our favorite vintages. Too. Yeah. And that little bit of sweetness. It's just enough that like a super taster could pick it up. I Six grams, I'd have to be looking for it. Um, that's pretty close on the edge Because the there. TA was pretty high, yeah, too. But it was low at seven. With ac- yeah, with acids, mm. you know, with higher acids, it kind of masks the sweetness. It can, help, it can hold yeah. it. I, I know in my first few Shannons were from this um from clarksburg Mm -hmm. and i used to you know they were always very high acid and Mm -hmm. and um bone dry and people would say you know you ought to put a little bit of it never hurt leave a little bit of rs and i never did with those wines and my complaint was always that they were simple and Mm -hmm. um maybe if i would have left a little rs they wouldn't have been quite so simple you know you kind of think about that over the years yeah and it does round them you know the other the other solution to that of course is 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 bottle time because that'll polish it off that way but the mendocino was always the first out of the blocks we were usually bottling and we're usually bottling in april and may and putting it out in the summertime the napa which will be the third wine we have has always lagged by usually usually needed a year in bottle which is a real terrible thing to tell your banker about a white wine yeah well it's also like as we taste it you know because you can't not you know, every day right after bottling. And then we're just like, God, we missed, we missed the target on the nap. It's just not exciting. It's not exciting at all. And then a year later, just that would be like, okay, now it's my favorite. Yeah. You know, and what's fun about doing a nap in a Mendocino is, um, you can champion Mendocino because more often than not, the Mendocino is my favorite, even if I don't know what I'm drinking. And that's kind of fun. What happened during that year? Do you think that made it so much different? Ooh, I don't know. I mean, chemically, not much changed in in the bottle but i think it's just that that, that bottle aging yeah you know it's mm-hmm. I, I mean it's we always say this john it's a it's a living entity right yeah, and absolutely. it's going to evolve differently every year and it's just something that happens that's the beauty of what wine right that it does do that it's it's mm-hmm. so amazing so and, and the ghost in the machine a little bit too the mendocino comes out the day after bottling fantastic it doesn't and, go through a bottle right. shark. And, then, but right. for some reason, the Napa, yeah. and again, it's a little bit of woo-woo. You know, we try not to be woo-woo-y, but in it the is, wine industry, it you might have been that it was, it. you know, a full moon that day that we bottled or, you know, oh. whatever it is. It's oh. like, yeah, here we go. you never here know. We go. You never know. But it's it's really apparent that, you know, well, and it was not me who came up with this one, but the best wines of my my own that I've tasted were always tasted the day before I bottled them. Mm-hmm. You know, that was. The, you know what? I think I'm going to steal that yeah. from you. Oh <laughs> you no! Know. How about this? I'll credit you on. It's yeah. <laughs> great, but uh, well, I think like Jerry Luke. The current vintage is easily my favorite. Yeah, but it's also before you put it through all the stuff. It's yeah. you get the yeah. blend together. It's in the tank. It's getting ready to go to bottle. All your numbers are straight. They're making you sign your life away at the bottling line. You know, because yeah. the cork's a little short, or you know, whatever. And you go and you get that glass and you go, wow, you know, I've been working on this. It's mostly red that has that damage control right after bottling. And you go, wow, that's really great. Wow, how'd that, how'd I, wow, for all the hassle I went through, how'd that come out that way? And then two days later, it's like, oh, boy, here we go. It's yeah. going to take a while. They, they do come back, but yeah. it's kind of like teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so the third wine, um, 
was it 16? 18. Was our, 18 was our first year. Oh no, oh. 14 was the first year. Okay. This is the 18. So we were, we were kind of talking earlier about how hard it is to find Chen and anywhere, not even just in Napa, um, but in California in general. And so there was about an acre and a quarter, uh, Losi Vineyard in Oak Knoll, right there by the river. Really nasty little vineyard. It probably had about half the acre and a quarter producing. Everything else was either dead or ripped out. And we loved it. Um, and they've, they've since, you this know, is the ripped it out. Vintage. So we no longer get any more. So this is, this is the, the last of it right here. Yeah. And we had five years with it. Um, this really does well with age and we think we get the richness to it. We treat it the yeah. exact same way. We do nothing different. Maybe, enough, maybe the better barrels newer. go into the Napa yeah. slightly newer. That's all relative for my dad. Those are only five years old, not seven and eight. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and so I think you get, he just slipped out with <laughs> <dissed> me. <laughs> <laughs> It's all relative. Well, I can tell you when the when the barrel guy drops off barrels for for Lang and Reed at Laird, they always look like, what? Where'd you find <laughs> those? Really ordered two new barrels. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so the Napa I think is a good iteration of um, what sun and soil and, um, and and vines in Napa can do. Again, it's I love them both. I love both my children the same, and I love both these wines the same. But. Um, the Napa sure is fun right now. Yeah, and they hit the yeah. table in a really different way. This is the oyster wine. Right. You know, yeah. Our first year out of the blocks, Sunset Magazine came out with the eight definitive mm -hmm. beverages to, to drink with you know, Pacific oysters, and we were on the list. It was our first Shannon out of the block. Wow. So yeah, I remember well, that. Yeah. Okay, great. And then this is more, you know, this needs more protein. This, yeah. you know, roasted squab or, mm -hmm. a, you know, filet of sole. No, it's a full mouth experience. Yeah. And, and I th also think twenty, you know, vintage-wise, uh, the eighteen was a was a great year for this Shannon. But also the four years on it really rounds it out, and yeah. it, it, the acid's the same, but it it it, it gives it more oomph to it, yeah. and it's richer, yeah, with a little bit of aging. And that's uh, I think one thing about Shannon that really attracts us is the ageability. Yeah, um, you have them decades old, and they're still fresh. Yeah. The that's hard to do with white wine. I was fortunate to be born in a, a pretty good year in the 50s. I was born in 53. And due to uh, the kindness of others, I've had a great opportunity to taste quite a few uh, 53s in my life. And um, mostly because of a buddy of mine in England. <laughs> and uh, But I mean, first gross, you know, it was usually Bordeaux. I've had a couple really nice burgundies from 53. Uh, most of the time he'd say, you know, there's probably a little bit of Syrah brought up from the south for that one but the most spectacular 53 i've ever had was uh three years ago on my 50, 65th birthday uh matthew baudry uh, came to visit us the year before and brought me a ua uh molu from 1953 which was just wow. absolutely the most mm -hmm. stunning thing the only bummer of it was was the fact that we were at mustards because cindy opened up mustards on my 30th birthday so on my birthdays that's generally where we are and we had a table of five or six and Cindy and her husband with John Consgard and Maggie and Carl Dermaney were all sitting to, and we had to share the bottle with them. Yeah. That was the only bummer of the story because <laughs> otherwise he and I would have, you know, Polished yeah. And we did it in yeah. the first course instead of waiting for dessert. He, <laughs> did, he, he did that on my 30th too. He yeah. brought an 83 shovel, which, you know, not the best year, but it was a delicious wine and we were just honored to drink it. And of course it was like a 12 top. Right. Know, so it was like, <laughs> do you know that you're a psalm nightmare too? That yeah, I hate. I shouldn't say I hate. I just I just contributed to. I think it's Wine Advocate. They're doing an interview and they were um, asking me about um, things that are annoying or frustrating. 
And one of them is the large parties that order individual bottles. So oh, it's yeah, right. parties of 12 that will order five different wines. Yeah. So I'm, I'm more immediately I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm going to have to polish so much glassware tonight. <laughs> oh yeah. And then, and then I got to make sure and make it around the table. Cause I'm thinking, okay, 25.36 ounces. So I'm going to yep, pour yep. two ounces for each person. Make sure you make it back to that last glass, mm-hmm. right? Not just a bunch of sediment in the bottle. Cause um, he's usually the guy who brought it or paid for it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So thank you. And they want to sit on it and let it breathe for a long time. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and the server, you know, I'm, I'm spending the entire time. It's an hour and a half. I'm spending time in that one room now with a 12 top instead of out on the floor selling wine to the rest of the world. Of, of yeah. The world. Yeah. yeah. And I always, I always like to keep in mind because, uh, you know, we do this often with nice bottles. Oh, please save yourself a glass. Right. You know, the server's like, Thank you. That's very kind, yeah. but just drink it. Right. Just drink it. And by the way, I don't have time to sit here yeah. and drink wine with you. If I was sitting down having dinner with you, I would enjoy yeah. that wine. Yeah. But I'm just going to kill it and then move on to table yeah. 22 oh, where I'm going to take a dessert or not. Right. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. It's fresh yeah. on my mind from, yeah. from contributing to that article. And I just, those large parties yeah. kill me. But, yeah. So the can't wait to was, read the article. <laughs> I tried to be nice because they're, they credit you as from where you're from. And they actually were asking about... Can you tell us about some of the rudest guests that you've ever served? Oh, and I oh, thought, yeah, man. Like, I'm going to say, oh, yeah, Mr. So-and-so, who's yep. a regular guest of ours, is a total yeah. a-hole. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was told when I first started in service that, you know, half the customers are really nice and half of them are really cranky. But it doesn't mean the nice ones are the high tippers either. Right. You know that, too. Yeah. Well, in large <laughs> so, parties, we just tack on the 20%. So right. you, go ahead and be rude. I don't care. Right. <laughs> When's your article coming up? I don't I don't know. Um, That's one of those things where you just, you know, you fire something off, and then maybe six months from now you'll it see it. It shows up so, in your, yeah. on your clipping service, right? Yeah, and hopefully, the, yeah. you know, I didn't get anything approved by my bosses, so hopefully I didn't say anything too inflammatory. <laughs> <laughs> but in this market right now, I think... It's pretty challenging to get fired from a restaurant position. Anyway. I, I think so too. Yeah. <laughs> when I look at the, what, you know, this sort of new blood brought to us, which was really great, you know, this uh, inspiration to bring in another Loire inspiration wine into our portfolio, it really brought relevant relevancy back to our brand. Cause we were, we were doing Cabernet Franc when everybody thought it was a crazy idea. And there was not this groundswell of interest in it until about 10 or 15 years later from that point. Um, and at this actually was our 20th anniversary, 13, when you, when you count the actual years, it was the 20th anniversary of doing only Cabernet Franc. And to be able to do this put us into an entirely different uh, realm. For one, it was an easy way to discuss what might happen with the next generation coming in. Uh, and especially after with one of the guys who the wine is named after. Uh, and, it, you know, it gave us an ability to go to the world and say, you know, we're just not a franc people. We've spent 20 years trying to perfect that to a certain degree. Now here's something new and, and inspirational. Uh, when we first faced doing the Napa, which was the year after we'd done the Mendocino, my first thought was, well, let's make our life easy and blend them and call it North Coast and it'll match our North Coast Cabernet Franc. Mm. But once we got it in the cellar and realizing there was no economy of scale to this, there was just no way to get more fruit. Uh, it was only going to be two or 300 cases a year. And once we hit the cellar with them both, we saw that they were so distinctively different yeah. that, hey, why not double your SKUs? Yeah. You know, go from two SKUs to four. It's still not an unmanageable amount of, you know, different labels to deal with. 
The Talmadge is interesting. It will really not go into distribution at all. Uh, I will not and that's think. And the, that's the, the, the reserve shot yeah, of the, the Talmadge. And the label is up on the wall there. We can pass the label around. It has not been released. We don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but it'll be in the, this summertime sometime. And we don't know what the pricing yeah. will be. Culturally, at Lang and Reed, with the with the advent of this tasting room that we're sitting in now, um, it's given Springhouse, Springhouse, yes, Springhouse. Um, the tasting salon at Springhouse. Um, it, it's given a lot of kind of hope and, and a, a resurgence of excitement about um, the wines that that we make here. Um, we can we can pour somebody a glass of wine, show them the bottle introduce them to the, the the dog mom and dad are coming in and out of the office my wife is you know pouring wine or doing it behind her desk and it, it, it gives it gives hope to a, to a brand that is is good but also you know like you had kind of said uh, maybe a little tired with just Cap six years old right? well yeah. I, I mean and talk about that a little bit because we you know we've had guests that mm -hmm. make one variety mm -hmm. and they're trying to do it all these different ways and show different or not doing it different ways but showing where it comes from and they're all kind of new to that. Um, they would probably like to hear your thoughts on when you made decided to do that originally, because um, there weren't a lot of people doing just one variety. Um, and you did do it a couple different styles, so to speak. Um, and then, you know, the conversation, I think we kind of touched on that about bringing in the new wine. But um, but if you could talk about the other, you know, what, what, what it was like to only have one wine and having people come and go, but I really like Sauvignon Blanc. It's tough to do winemaker dinners, Mark. Mm -hmm. You got it. That's yeah. why the white is held. But now, <laughs> yeah. now, now I, you know, I'm not doing much market work. Yeah. It might be a good segue to bring the reds in. Yeah. Would it? Sure. Yeah, let's do that. Grab them? Or have the... Um, but but if you don't mind, talk about why Cab Branc and, okay. and yeah. some of the positive well, and negatives, because as, as wine drinkers, we're all heavy consumers here, I believe. Yeah. That's well, at first, I, I was curious a couple of things about the Chenin Blanc. Um, price difference per ton Napa as opposed to Mendocino. And then where are you now getting Napa fruit from? And how much of a challenge is that to find new sources for Chenin Blanc? Um, they're pretty close. Can in you share some? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the, um, w you know, we are, we're, it's the moving target. Um, when the Mendocino, the Napa came to me through Peter Franis. Mm -hmm. He had a contract with the vineyard. Um, it was giving about four tons, this acre and a quarter, um, which half of it was not producing. He split it with us in 14 and 15. He came, he said, I'm making too many wines. I'm making El Barino and da, da, da. Would you take over the whole thing? And I said, yes. And then the vineyard management company changed. The contract moved to someone else. I begged him to just keep me in continuity. About two weeks before the harvest happened, he agreed to sell me a ton of it. And, uh, about two weeks before harvest, he goes, have you been in the vineyard lately? He says, do you see how bad it looks? And I go, yeah, it really looks bad. <laughs> he goes, I don't think I really want to make wine from that. Would you take it on? I go, well, let me ask Tracy, you know, <laughs> just, yeah, I think we'll do it. Yeah, we can take care of that for you. And I got the contract back. Same thing has happened up in Mendocino. I, I was actually, the first two years I was getting, uh, I, somebody had a 10 ton contract on the vineyard. It was there were about eight or nine people in the vineyard at that time. Half of it was going to Jermaine Rabon for brandy. Wow. And uh, so um, I, this guy, another confer of mine had a 10 ton contract and he said, I really only need about five or six tons. So how about, you know, we press it at Mendocino Wine Company. Let me press it. You come get the juice, da, da, da. So the first two years, that's what we did. 
And then the third year we got cut out because it was 15 and no, there was no fruit. I mean, he could barely fill out the contract that we had. Um, that should be one. I hope these are the right ones. Yes, that should be one. 19. All right, you can hear the sound of pouring wine. Yes, you sure can. And it sounds like it's red. I think that's the first pause we've ever taken. That's it. At least you can tell it's red from the red color. Right, exactly. Red so, wine. Cabernet Franc. Like, what were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, you know what? I, I remember when I first started learning about Cabernet Franc, um, it, it was always, you know, used as a blender, as we've all been kind of taught over the years. But what I learned about Cabernet Franc is Cabernet Franc was, at a, th this point anyway, the most expensive grape per ton because there was so little of it planted and it was um, so sought after. Yeah. Um, in Napa so, County, it still is. Yeah. Everybody um, wants a couple tons, and yeah. they, Less than Petit Verdot. Yeah, Petit Verdot. Close second. Yeah, Petit Verdot took the took the prize for about three or four years in the twenty six years that I've been buying Franck in the neighborhood. Um, but about two or three years ago, uh, Franck took on the lead. Um, it's really attributed to the Uber blends, the guys who are doing Uber blends here, because. There's 24,000 acres of Cabernet Sauvignon in Napa Valley, and there's 1,200 acres, 12, 1,300 acres of Franc. So you think that they're usually using sort of 4 to 10%. Right. It absorbs it up. And a, a major shift happened between the early 90s and now is the fact that uh, just like Merlot, Franc, and all the other, everything but Cabernet was really put in really terrible ground. And with Franc in particular, we really had terrible clonal selections or uh, field selections, whatever you were doing. It's an indicator for family virus. So if you had, you know, the nematode in your vineyard, it would show up. Usually the vineyards would last five or six years. And I mean, the front end of Inglenook was replanted, I think, three times in a decade because it was a major block of frunk in there. Um, in the early 90s, uh, uh, John Caldwell and um, Sunridge brought in, um, uh, started to bring in the Ontov Enris selections, and that changed the world. And by that time, because of the phylloxera, Thing, people started to say, well, maybe we better think about where we're putting this. And uh, Aaron Pott, who's a confrere and a good, you know, he's a Cabernet Franc fan, always reminds us that Cabernet Franc is a really ancient varietal. And old Vitis vinifera is extremely transparent for good or bad. It'll show you when it's in bad soils, it'll show you when it's in good soils. It will overcrop if it can, and it will undercrop if it can. Mm. Um, and that it shows its sight much more transparently than Cabernet Sauvignon will. Mm -hmm. I, I would say that's a, a very similar thing to looking at a comparison between Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay, because Sauvignon Blanc is equally as old a, a you know, a grapevine. And that's why they're genetically very close, and that's why they had their one-night stand 500 years ago and created Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, for Lang and Reed, why Cabernet Franc was, um, I had worked for sort of big Cabernet Sauvignon producers, not big in volume, but big in style and big in the, the pantheon of Napa Valley. And Tracy was, you know, simultaneously working at Spotswood. So we had seen a lot of, you know, I'd been tasting barrels since I first started coming out here in 79. And the revolution happened, you know, I could attribute it to the the line in the sand was when 
Joseph Phelps created Insignia because before then Cabernet Sauvignon was usually 100% in Napa Valley. BB Private Reserve was 100%. The Angola Casts were 100%. We know Robert Mondavi always played with Franck in, in the reserves because it was from, coming from Tocolon and Dietert. Um, Louis Martini was always uh, toying with a little bit of Merlot because he was trying to calm you know, Moon Mountain. Uh, so he'd soften it off with a little bit of Merlot, but nobody talked about it. It was like a, you know, we all made Petite Syrah in the 70s and the 80s, yeah. a couple tons each year, just in case it was a light Cabernet yeah. year because mm -hmm. we needed color. Yeah. Um, and if we didn't, we'd bottle it by itself. If you look back in Camus's history, they always had a little bit of Petite Syrah for sale at the tasting room. And that yeah. was when we didn't need it for the Cabernet. <clears throat> I, th I think Cab Franc for me, it's a, it's a wine drinker's, you know, wine. It's it's. It's nuanced. It's uh, yeah. when made poorly. It's it's remarkably unremarkable. Much much like Pinot Noir, um, it shows as John said. It, it shows the site. Um, it shows the farming practices. It shows the vinification. Um, more forgiving varietal Chardonnay, Cabernet Sauvignon. They can you can beat them up a bit. You can you can play with them and you can you can mold them. Um, if you, if you pick Cab Franc and it's on soil that's not perfect for it, if the sunlight's not there, the canopy management's not there, it's going to taste. The, the the bad notes the the less desirable notes let me put it yeah, that way really shine through yeah they shine through <laughs> yeah. there are more forgiving varietals and you don't even have to nail it to make it taste good and we I don't claim to nail it at Lang and Reed John doesn't claim to nail it here but it, it works the the style works for us so going back into the early nineties when Tracy and I decided that it was time that we do something on our own to build our own you know, equity or legacy type of thing, because we had both worked for other wineries and helped them do that for them, their, their selves. <clears throat> the Tracy story is really keen because she'd on a Tuesday night say, go to the wine cellar, we need a bottle of red wine. And I'd walk out in the wine cellar and I'd look at, you know, this, the wall of sound, you know, it was all Cabernet Sauvignon because that's, it was my resume and her resume, right? And I'd look at this side and it was all too young to drink, you know, on, with the meatloaf and, this side was all too rare to drink with the meatloaf. It was either birth years of the kids or ones we were saving, you know, ones that were now 10 times the price that we paid for when it was given to us. And I'd come back and we couldn't keep Zinfandel around the house because I like Zinfandel really young and bright. Nobody was really doing Pinot Noirs to save at that time to speak of, you know, we had a Syrah, Petite Syrah selection that Tracy seemed to like, but she'd shake her head and say, wow, if you ever make wine, for us i want something we could drink on a tuesday night and that we could afford to, to open a second bottle because typically you're always going to be one or two glasses ahead of me and so that was the mantra <laughs> that's generous <laughs> that's true so that was one of the mantras and you know having worked in the valley by that time you know a dozen years or more um i always sort of felt we took ourselves a little too serious you know yeah. that we were a little too precious and inbred and everybody wanted to make Latour or if you were doing Franck, you wanted to make Cheval Blanc. <clears throat> and we started to look at Franck because when barrel tasting, we both would come home, separate ex experiences and say, wow, by about March or April, you know, you taste Cabernet, it's starting to close down and get woody. Merlot was just starting not even get off weedy. You taste Cabernet Franck in three or four months. And it was like, wow, draw me a flag and let's have a picnic at a Bacchanal. You know, let's drink this and have fun. And it was a little bit of a nouveau uh, element to it that, right. you know, it's all the perfume because it's an aromatic red grape. Yeah. And uh, 
I remember the first years of, you know, drinking better than, you know, jug wines. Uh, Beaujolais was a big thing. And not that Beaujolais is always simple. I mean, the crew Beaujolais are just totally fantastic and something that I look at as great values compared to red burgundy. But I wanted to make, ultimately decided to make something that was gulpable, enjoyable, yet not simple. And like Reed said, it become it, be, it was kind of a winemaker's wine. It was really more a wine drinker's wine. People who knew what it was about still seek it out. Uh, the second thing that came along was the fact that we knew we had to be do a niche. And I didn't want to do Cabernet Sauvignon because I had to have keep a consulting business going, which I was working mostly for Cabernet Sauvignon producers here in the Valley. So I didn't want to be in competition with myself with that. And uh, plus we knew what it took to do AAA Cabernet Sauvignon. You had to own and control everything along the chain. And, and, and in this, at the time you were working out of my old bedroom, moved me in with my right. brother yep. and, and the garage. Yep. I am there again. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't come back. It's very here. cyclical. <laughs> I won't tell you Anyways, simultaneously, I was coming up the chairs at the Napa Valley Vintners Association Board of Directors and. Uh, I attribute two of my main mentors, apart from the people I worked for, and I really had some great mentors in that arena. Um, Tony Soder at Coppola was really instrumental in me coming to the intellectual decision how to make the wine on the far left. Um, you know, do I bring it to you underripe? You know, do I bring, you know, I want it ready to go in about eight months, nine months. I want it on the table on Tuesday nights. I want to be priced by the glass. I want it to turn over like a white wine for financial reasons. Well, two years before I became chairman of the board of the Vintners Association, Dan Dockhorn was the president. And we became good friends. I had been selling him Merlot at Coppola for a couple of years. And he said, of course, well, make something you like, because if you can't sell it, you're going to have to drink it. And I just ripped page one out of his book. Uh, he also said, do it, do it well. And so I thought, he owns Merlot. Anybody says, right. name the top five Merlots in California. Yeah, right. Duckhorn is always on that list. Mm -hmm. And then the other guy, uh, who was the president the year before, or the chairman the year before I was, was Dick Ward, uh, who Dave and Dick show at Saintsbury, uh, and the greatest cynic I've ever worked with, and, uh, sometimes really brutal, but really a good friend. And he said, look at man, you went to art school, so people aren't going to expect you to do what they, yeah. what they think you're going to do. <laughs> and he said, you know, and the whole world's not made of Cabernet Sauvignon, so... Um, we picked Franck. Um, I bought a ton and a half from Doug Stanton from a vineyard in Oakville in 93 as the prototype. The whole program was going to be I would buy the fruit, I would make it in a custom crush facility, and then Tracy would have to take over the sales and marketing because that would put me in conflict with my, right. my clients. So uh, Doug, sent, uh, Doug sold me the ton and a half. Tony Soder made it at Etude when he was on Big Ranch Road. Uh, it was five barrels. It moved from Tony Soder. We hit it. Uh, Scott McLeod, who was the winemaker working for me at at uh, Claude, or at uh, Nibom Coppola, hit it in the Coppola cellars for about a year. Um, <laughs> Ray Corson. Ray Corson bottled it yeah. uh, clandestinely in the middle of the night at um, uh, Rutherford Grove. <laughs> when I finally went to the attorneys in 96 to get our licenses, I, it was... Uh, 
Richard Mendelssohn. And I go, well, we have uh, this 125 cases of wine from 93. And he goes, well, tell me about it. And I go, well, I made it here. God. He goes, don't tell me anymore. <laughs> he says, do you have any paperwork on that? I go, no. Give me a day. I said, I paid cash along the way. So, Anyways, the idea was we had looked at all the Loire wines. I was going traveling to England twice a year and my my main connector there would have a whole case of different Loire wines that we couldn't, you know, Cabernet Franc that we couldn't get here at the time. And um, they, it was really clear. They made two styles of wine in those days, a Van de Lanay, a wine of the year, and a Van de Gart wine to age. And so that was the mantra. We had two SKUs that sit there right in front of you, left and right. So the first wine is the 2019 uh, Van de Lanay. It, now is carrying a, a California Appalachian. It started as Napa Valley, went to North Coast, but with the fires of the last four or five years, I've reached out to other parts. This one actually has uh, a little bit of fruit from uh, La Cienega, from Hollister. So it had to default to a California Appalachian. And we're in discussion now whether or not to just keep it because nobody blinked an eye, you know, once they found out why we were doing it. Um, I continued to buy the fruit. And, 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 and how many cases of, of each of these? This is between 1,000 and 3,000 okay. a year. Right. Uh, the 214, which is a single vineyard, single clone Napa Valley, uh, is about 250 to 500 a year. The last one, which is a, a, a unicorn, which is the uh, Franc de Pied, that was 48 cases. It was two barrels. So, um, I mean, now it's, it's after... After your kind of discussion on that, I'll go back to this. Aren't you glad you're not making Cabernet Sauvignon? <laughs> you know, we did a in 2004. Um, I wanted to make a wine that reflected an experience that Tracy and I had in uh, in uh, Santa Milione on the Fourth of July in 1977 to honor our 30th anniversary, which was in uh, 07. And I made a wine called Right Bank. I did two years of it. Um, the about a week before we released the eighty or the oh four, um, the economy collapsed. AIG and and uh, Lehman Brothers went out of business, and so we suffered through selling about two hundred cases of those two vintages. But I'm still curious. I'd still mm -hmm. like to take other elements and bring them to Franck. The 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 conundrum with that is the fact that. Cabernet Franc is a chameleon, so whatever you bring to it, it will take on what it is. So if you add a little Merlot, it'll be soft and, and fuzzy. If you add Cabernet, it'll be more linear, a little more structured. You know, it'll maybe broader in its, you know, in its reach. Um, but I think he and I will, maybe in a couple years, we have a new source for Franc that's just got put in the ground last year that one row is a, is the 327, which is a Bordeaux clone. And then the other one is the 214, which is what is in the glass here, which is the Loire clone in the same dirt. Yeah. And if we could have a row of Cabernet and a row of, or half a row of Cabernet and half a row of Merlot in that same dirt, it would be really fun to micro vinify those. Mm -hmm. I found in custom crush, it's hard to do little batches of micro vinification stuff, but. <clears throat> and, and also outreach to people, you know, for fear of becoming too myopic with just Cab Franc, um, kind of going back to the tasting room ideas, um, dad can geek out here on this 50 case run of like, sure they drank it, but did they get it? 
you know, at a restaurant that's the, you know, special models and special releases are just lost. Whereas he can actually take them through the whole, the the whole rigmarole of what it took to get to it. And they can see the passion and the the fun behind it. Um, and, and get why that, you know, the, the first wine is effably quaffable, I believe is the term, you know, it could, but it could also be coming out of a carafe in a, in a bistro in Paris, you know, and then the 214 that would have to come out of a bottle on a Friday night, you know, late in the evening and, and so on. So, but don't you also think the the 2019? I mean, it's got some life to it. It's gonna, oh, it's fresh. It's yeah. I mean, it's so fresh. Yeah. It really makes you kind of wonder what it's like going to be like in a few years. We've we've had some really good. Um, uh, again, going back to a couple months, we had the, the 25th anniversary, and I think we tasted every single vintage, if not most of them. Most of them. And um, the vast majority were still alive and fresh. And we uh, actually presented the. Uh, the ninety six, the ninety six regular out of magnums. This what yeah. would have been this wine, and then the ninety six uh, Primeritage, which was the wine that preceded the two fourteen. Yeah, and they both held up. Really they both well. held up really well. And be it, it certainly wasn't winemaking or vinification. It was, no, no, it or was, the cork. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was genetic. Um, you know, the, the, this variety holds yeah. up, and and it does so with as little intervention and no idea what they, what John was doing at the time. Right, it was real trial and error, and you know it was. Uh, I was also, I still do minimal amount of filtering, but you know, Britannomyces was really prevalent in those days. And, and, and it would, the early release tended to go through the bloom. I would release it exactly one year after harvest. So it was always coming out in September, or October, the harvest afterwards. And Debbie Zacharias, who's, you know, been in the business forever, used to buy it for uh, this wine bar she worked at in Coal Valley. And she'd buy 10 cases at a time. And she'd say, the first three months is, is just like, oh yeah, bring me a flag in. <laughs> and she said, and then it kind of bloom and go into this funky period mm-hmm. and then come around April, you know, March or April, it would back off and it'd just be an entirely different wine. And, and mm-hmm. so we lived through those cycles of understanding the, 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 the biology and the mechanics of it. And again, I, I'm a very right brain person. I went to art school uh, when I worked at, uh, I custom crushed a lot of places. Uh, we were at uh, Honig for a while and, and Kristen Belair and uh, uh, James Hall were there, and James was easy to work with. Kristen was a little more didactic, and she finally came up to me one day and said, you know, John, you're starting to make enough wine where you, you, you should probably learn what those lab reports mean. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why he has me. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it helps. Yeah. Um, uh, so the second, uh, move on to the second wine. Yeah. So th- this is the 214. So this is the flagship of Lang and Reed at the moment. And the 214 stands for the Antibes 214 clone. And this vineyard at the time, uh, we started making this in 07. We lost, I believe it was Doug Stanton's vineyard. Oh yeah, no, well, or no, it was Mander. It was uh, Dick, 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 Dan Duckhorn's alluvial, which turned oh, that's into right. Mander. So we, we needed another source for the Cab Franc for the for the Vandegard. and um, on the Sugarloaf Vineyard. If you guys are familiar with it, down by the the Romantic DMV down in Napa, it's this beautiful nosebleed of a hill. I think the bottom elevation is five hundred feet. The higher elevations nine, almost a thousand feet, and it's. It's right next to a quarry. There's no soil. It's just angry, broken rock that's sure the vacuum range comes down to the yeah. ocean. And it, it, you overlook the whole bay. So it has Napa sun, but San Pablo Bay wind and coolness. And this this clone, uh, the the Anti Two Fourteen clone, is a Loire clone. Um, all previous vintages, and, and don't quote me on that, but this is what they tell us. Um, all previous um, vineyards planted to Cab Franc was all um, Bordeaux clones. Yep. 
And so this is designed to be in a cooler, wetter, more windy climate. And this vineyard, from from the get go, this vineyard has always been well. And this has become the force, the force for Cap, or force for Cap Franc for Lang and Reed. I, I think it's I've heard, I heard you talk about this vineyard once before, mm-hmm. and um, it's amazing because I think when they planted those vines, I mean those have, are of some age at this point. Right? Yeah, um, yeah, they were in 05, so we're now at you know eighteen. They're teenagers, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we kind of looked at it and went, "Oh, that's just a land grab," you know, because totally. we didn't call it Napa. And it was owned by Calpers or something. Yeah, it's going to be too mm-hmm. cold. It'll never make anything yeah. good, and. It, um, it is the same uh, climate as Caneros, and the difference is the fact that the Vaca range goes closer to the ocean before it drops, and it's all it's a volcanic spine, mm-hmm. it's uh, rhyolitic uh, volcanics, where Caneros drops, you know, at uh, Trichard, which is actually near your house, yeah. and then it takes about five miles to get to the water. So all that was estuary at one point, which is a lot of clay, right. and it's cold soil, so it's great for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. You know, Doug Schaefer used to have Cabernet Franc at Red Shoulder Ranch, and he said I've, it made great wine. He said, but we harvested it in November, mm-hmm. and he said Elias was throwing me out the out the deck because I'd have to get the red wine, you know, crush pad dirty yeah. again. Yeah. So he flipped it to Chardonnay eventually. So, but it, the conventional wisdom would have told you this is too cold a spot for Bordeaux varietals, and yeah. there's there's a little Merlot up there, not a lot. There's a little Syrah and there's a lot of Cabernet. I make there. a lot of Merlot off that vineyard. I work right. for Russell Babin too, yeah. and we get we make some of the best Merlot ever off that vineyard. And it's it's uh, the Merlot is from the backside, so it's a little bit warmer, a little less um, exposed than the Cab Franc. But um, that the, that vineyard for for non Cabernet Sauvignon, it's a fantastic vineyard. Yeah, and so. it's I've seen I've watched the weather daily. It's a little obsessive, but. <laughs> Tracy always says, well, what can you do about it? Nothing, you know. <laughs> but I still have to worry I about it. I still have to worry about it. <laughs> we are always 15 degrees warmer in the middle of July up mm-hmm. here in St. Helena. We live on the back west side. Yeah. And like this year, might 17 might not have because we had some pretty heavy heat spikes this year. This was a warm, hot year. We beat the fires. This was mm-hmm. harvested on the 7th or the 8th, and the fires happened on the 11th or 12th. But this is where I kind of figured that I learned that on a hot vintage, ironically, when you have these spikes and then everything goes back to normal and you spike and, and everybody started to panic pick because the sugars were shooting up. In the end game, going to the ETS uh, laboratory end of harvest seminar, and they do thousands and thousands and thousands of analysis. And we all now code them for them as to region and mm-hmm. you know that sort of thing. The average bricks in Napa Valley for red wines was a full degree lower than the year before. And it was a hot vintage. Everybody assumed the opposite. And it's because they said over 90, 95 degrees, the vine will shut down and will not produce. Mm-hmm. It will simply try to preserve itself. It'll so, desiccate, but it won't actually right. keep keep uh, maturing. So this year is a, a what I call a spiny year for us. 16 was one of my favorites it was one of those years that vineyard never went over 85 degrees fahrenheit and it was only two days you know yeah. it was like up here it'd be you know 102 right. or 95 yeah. but that coolness uh the little bit of wind that you know it's the same effect that stags leap gets but about an hour or two beforehand right. and that's why when nathan fay back in 1966 planted cabernet and uh 
in Stag's Leap District. They thought he was crazy. They said it'll never come to ripening. Well, and we get we, we get a little bit of the uh, the the slower ripening and the, the longer growing period for for a, a, a wine style that is lighter and uh, less Napa Cabernet, if I can just use that as a generic term. Um, we're able to ripen the fruit longer, keep the alcohols low, keep the sugars low, but also kind of burn out the pyrazines. And so the, the greenness and the and the blueness that one gets in the North Coast, those are hotter hotter climate Cab Francs. So the canopy management is almost moot. It's going to get ripe no matter what. Whereas at Sugarloaf, we can really have like full late picks, but not be 32 bricks. Yeah. Right. So we're able to keep it under 15, but we're also able to kind of burn out those those blue green notes. It's interesting too because Russell gets the other half of this vineyard and mm -hmm. we've been sharing this vineyard for years and we make yeah before yeah before we even knew him. yeah didactically different wines yeah. and i do a different canopy slightly different canopy management he does a full brazilian i kind of like to have him covered up a little bit more yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and what's fun now is so um and he's making it now, yeah so, he so, gets to see so it. yeah we're making lang and reed at elise winery which i'm directly in charge of running and so i have you know russell's and morgato's cab franc in one tank and then I have Lang and Reed's Cab Franc, same vineyard, same block, rows one through 17 and 22, or then 17 yeah, through 22 yeah. side by side. Right. And so it's, it's a very cool. Uh, and what does he cool say thing. when he, cause I'm sure you're letting him taste the Lang and Anything Reed, right? Anything with is garbage. <laughs> Russell's a conundrum. He's uh because he's, his, his wine style is exactly that. Uh, it will, it, it, it's big, it's bold, it's brash. It's a, it's a milkshake in your mouth. Yeah. Um, but what, what I like about Russell is he loves wine. And so uh, it doesn't matter what kind, what style, as long as it's good wine and it, he's going to love it anyway. He's, he's crazy about it to a manic almost. And so it's, it's, it's fun. Cause he gets a kick out of this. The cellar crew loves it. Cause it's very different than yeah. the Russell Bevan style. Um, Plus yeah. I, I worked with Jason Palmeyer for 25 years. It's like, you know, I knew what industrial strength was before they invented right. industrial yeah. strength. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, okay, Jason, I wrote his first wine description in 1986. Randy Dunn was making the wine, and this was how it all came about because Randy and I worked together at Camus. And after I was consulting while I was still working for other wineries, and he would bring me clients and I would bring him clients. So he brings me Jason, who is, you know, out of this world kind of guy, really very sweetheart. People think he's brash and, and braggadocious. He is, but he's also got a very tender heart. And it was like the first time I saw Levy make his Chardonnay for him, which is the one that wound up in the movie that made it made his brand famous. I just go, whoa! Like, oh, I'm not sure I can handle that. <laughs> you know, I could... my, my first vintage was for uh, Jason Palmer. I took a year off college. I think I was asked to politely take a year off from the college, um, <laughs> and uh, so I came down here and. Uh, I, I did a harvest for uh, Jason Palmer. We were at Napa Wine Co. Aaron Green was the winemaker, and Robert Henry, I think, was the assistant or associate. And uh, I was so young and so fresh. I'd grown up here in San Alina doing all this stuff, you know, cleaning bins after high school. For, not a big you know, fan of wine. Not a big fan of wine, you know, yeah. for beer money. And, and, you know, I knew how to drive a forklift. But, you know, again, I, I, wine wasn't attractive to me, luckily at the time. And um, so I got, I kind of begged my way onto this, this Paul Myers Heller team. I was the one intern, zero experience. And somebody pulled you know, some card to get me in there. Very thankful for it. And, um, Aaron, I was, you, you use grain alcohol to clean your valves and your, your, your gaskets and whatnot. And Aaron Green said, Oh, be careful. Cause we don't want to raise the alcohol of our wines. If you use too much of that grain alcohol to clean the valves and the gaskets, you're going to raise the, the alcohol in the wine. And I think I was so young and green at the time that I actually said that like, Oh, our alcohols are, 
are so high in Palmyre wines is because we use so much grain alcohol to clean the <laughs> to clean stuff. And, and looking back, you know, it was a simple mistake, but it was, it was, it was kind of fun. I time. didn't pull any cards. Jason has a daughter named Cleo. And from the time I started working with him and the, they were the same age and they were like six or seven and Cleo wanted nothing to do with Reed. Reed wanted nothing to do with Cleo, but Jason always thought that this would be one of the new dynasties in Napa Valley. Right. <laughs> there was there was never a chance. No, no, there never was. And they're good friends. To I might have been open to it, but she was definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Read that real quick. So She's a good friend now. Yeah. Um, and so the third wine, Dad, tell us about this. Well, this is a pretty, this is a unicorn if there ever was one. And um, the, um, I, it, it goes all the way back to an event that happened in 1983. Um, I was working with vintage wine merchants cool? and uh, John Parducci had just uh, taken over the, uh, the Canacti Growers Cooperative in Canacti. It was a, it was a actual, you know, agricultural cooperative of 31 <laughs> different partners who had vineyards uh, that ran the Canacti winery and the real world was coming to crash on them uh, very quickly. And uh, John Parducci became an equity partner and they turned it into an LLC and he was the managing partner. We did Mar uh, Parducci's, all of his marketing. So um, this was right after Reed was born. Uh, they sent me up to Kelseyville uh, uh, for uh, overnight. <laughs> it was like, I think I broke the record at the Kelseyville motel because I did stay overnight. Um, uh, and I was meeting with Bill Pease uh, you know what? I know exactly what you're talking about. I spent a lot of That's I, I, spent, I spent a lot of time in Lake County growing up, and yeah, it's Lake County. There's a reason why it's called Lake County. Yeah. Anyways, I was going up to <laughs> spend two days to go through all the vineyards um, and and find the story. I mean, that was what I was working for vintage wine merchants for was to find the story about this winery. It was not one owner; it's 31 different vineyards up there. And Bill Pease was the winemaker. Andre Chelichev was the consultant, but I thought he was like a, you know, he was consulting for a lot of people in those days. You know, he'd been gone from BV for 10 years and he was in his early 80s at the time. I had no idea when I showed up at 10 o'clock that morning that he'd be there and we, he was going to all the vineyards with us. And Bill Pease had a, like a 1961 little white Volkswagen bug. It was, I think a 27 horsepower. And you know, there's a lot of elevation in Lake County. Yeah. We went to like 10 vineyards the first day and 10 vineyards the second day. And because of Andre's age, uh, he got to sit in the front seat. I mean, he was really only like 4'10", or I, he might have been five foot, but he was a little tiny guy, but just brilliant mind and thick Russian accent. He had these brand new white Adidas shoes on it. Every time we get out of the car, he'd scrape the soil and he'd shake his head no, or he'd go, that's oh, red, that's good, you know. Then we'd go to the winery and we tasted all the wines in succession and, you know, wrote the story. We figured out Canoc Dive, you know, fast forward to 2005. I'm looking for new sources up in Lake County because Napa was getting too expensive to do the early to market red. And I was also, when I started, I was, I could buy any vineyard I wanted. I could buy any grapes. It was like people were bringing, you know, oh, you you're going to do Cabernet Franc. We want you to have a ton or two to experiment. Call us next yeah. year. Yeah. By 2005, I was, you know, I was having a bottom feed in Napa and the bottom feeding was not good. I, you know, one day I was driving down the street and thought, you know, Lake County, Sauvignon Blanc, it's the great white hope. By then the genetics had been figured out. I go, it's gotta be good for Franc. So I started buying fruit up there. 
2005, I go up to this vineyard. It was called the High Chaparral. It's above Kelseyville on Bell Hill Road. You kind of have to drive through this Oklahoma road to get to it where there's cars in front of everybody's houses and you know probably some meth labs in the back. And, um, but I go through the gates and I immediately am having a deja vu. It's on a plateau. There's no trees. It's kind of above tree line. So it's about 25, 2600 feet up. Place is dry as a bone. I mean, I couldn't believe it. And But I just had this eerie sense I'd been there before and it didn't dawn on me. And the old guy, uh, Dick Tunis, picks me up on his it's a great name. Dick, Dick Tunis. It's just, I, I remember, I remember seeing the vineyard with you and, and he's a, he's a guy that you would remember too. Oh yeah. And, uh, he took me out in his, you know, four wheeler and passed the Cabernet and it had been sold. It had been contracted by Mondavi and he had like 10 acres of Cabernet and seven acres of, of Merlot and these, uh, four or five acres of Franc. And Mondavi had contracted him for years and let him do all his own farming. Well, 04, if you remember, they sold a Constellation. Constellation wanted the Merlot and the Cabernet, but not the Franc. Mm. And they also wanted to farm their pieces. They didn't want Dick to farm them. That was the beginning of the end for Dick's Vineyard. So we drive out to the Franc, and there's this sign. And I remember this from 1983. It's white background, painted, hand-painted with black. It said Cabernet Franc. And I thought, Jesus Christ, I've been here before. I was here when it was like a six-year-old vineyard. It was, it was planted in 75, and it was bare-rooted. It was on its own roots because everybody thought Lake County could sustain bare roots. So we, Reed and I used to go up, and we'd tag vines because flocks were started up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was none in there when we started it. We were the, Not to blame Constellation, but with the outside farming source, the boots yeah. weren't cleaned. The, yeah. the pruning shears weren't cleaned. and. And so this this vineyard, which was on its own route, you know, for for those that don't know, ninety nine percent of grapevines out there are grafted on uh, scion and rootstock to to prevent the, the spread of diseases, mostly phylloxera. And this was one of those unicorns where he cut the branches off and stuck them in the ground, and that made his vineyard. Right. So and planted seventy five. So it was already thirty years old when I started working with it. And we could see it in the first year. I could see it in the first year. The second year that I worked with it, because I was up there in the spring. Mm -hmm. This time I was in the summertime when I contracted with it. And we'd start to tag vines, you know, the next year, because phylloxera is very vis visually apparent. It'll still f throw fruit, but it's not worthy of trying to make wine from it. And every year, Dick got crabbier and crabbier. Yeah, we tagged more and more. Vines. First we made great rosé out of it. Yeah, it was like a 4.55 acre vineyard. And we got 20 tons the first year. And the last year, 2010, we got six. Wow. And I tried to compensate it for him. But he couldn't reconcile why I wouldn't pick the grapes off the Scorpy vines. He also had water issues. And he was yeah, he was, nobody was, was taking it over. Yeah, we had, a, we had a frost year. And we're like, well, why didn't you turn your sprinklers on? He's like, I didn't have water. We're like, right. hmm. Okay. Yep. And there goes a, the vintage. Yeah, it was a de facto dry farm and a de facto uh, organic, organic because you wouldn't put. Yeah. Right. He, he was organic herb, before he yeah, had he pesticides. Didn't need herbicides <laughs> because he had no weeds because he couldn't water. Yeah. <laughs> and he complained about the neighbors because there was vineyards all around him. There had never been, you know. He says, "Oh, that's why my well went dry." Yeah. So, no vectors in. So, so the beauty of this wine is that uh, it'll never exist again. This vineyard's gone. It was ripped out in eleven. And these are two of the, the, the special barrels that were held over. So 50 cases. Um, and I, I think because it, it, it's nuanced because of it's on its own roots. 
um, again, the, the winemaking practices are the same as all other Lang and Reed wines. Um, the site, while being beautiful, is nothing to write home about. You know, it's just good grapes on good soil. He wanted me to buy it, but I just said I can't yeah, drive through Oklahoma to get no, to California. Yeah. <laughs> young, young me, young me said yes, buy it nowadays. No, no dice. The, the aromatics on this wine are yeah. so yeah. compelling. Man. Now this is fun for me because um, in 08, um, at Beaudry, whenever Beaudry, uh, maybe 10, 15 years prior to me being there, so 98 or whatnot, as Matthew was kind of taking over, um, they they were able to buy a bunch of vineyards, so they were able to sell. And, and put into fallow some of their, their valley floor and gravelly meadow sort of uh, Cab Franc and then buy uh, hillside coat, land, yeah, yeah. Coat, coat worthy um, vineyards. And as they planted Cab Franc, they would plant, you know, a, a hundred rows of, of normal, regular old on rootstock vines. And then there'd be two or three rows on each side that was the least accessible, the least where people would walk through, the least where dogs would go through. And they'd always put two or three rows of Franc de Pied. And so they had maybe 10, 15 vineyards on the coats and they'd have two or three rows of Franc de Pied on every vineyard. It didn't really last five, six, seven years. Yep. And, but we would make a barrel out of each vineyard. And at the end of the day, Baudry has one of the, one of the better Franc de Pieds out there. And it's very reminiscent, even though being in the middle of France, yep. completely different winemaking styles, the, those two wines taste very similar. There's a, um, there's a rusticity about it that yeah. was always appealing and it was the base wine of this wine for those five, six mm -hmm. years that I got it. Got it. In uh, when uh, Matou's father, Bernard Baudry and his wife, uh, Henriette came to their only trip to California was in 2011. They spent a couple of weeks with us and in the cellar, this was the 10 vintage. We were all in barrel at the time. Um, in, in the spring of 11 and uh, I had maybe seven or eight different francs in the cellar at that time and this was the one he liked the best and that was what gave me this, the impetus to I found two uh, sylvan medium toasts that were like two-year-olds that was pretty new oak for me at the time <laughs> and uh, I you just, said it I just put them to the side and didn't tell Tracy and then I gave him another year of barrel aging upon the more than the north coast and uh bottled them and then looking at distribution, um, nobody could, I could, when we'd propose it to him that, oh, it's gonna be five or six years old. And I, I, I bottled it like two years, two and a half years into barrel. And, you know, we had 48 cases sitting on a pallet and no label, we did it, you know. Um, and I'd go to my distribution and they go, wow, we're having a hard time selling this at, you know, whatever. Nobody got it. And it wasn't until we got this facility that it makes sense. And this is $185. Uh, there were 48 cases. We're down to three or four. That's why I thought it'd be good to do it today. <laughs> yeah. Thank uh, you for sharing. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. And because people don't get to see Franca 10 years. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the, the unique aspect that it was, it's bare rooted. And, and I always, you know, Andy Beckstoffer is a friend, but this is the first over $100 bottle of Lake Kind of Wine on the market. Because <laughs> he was going to do it in Red Hills. <laughs> well, I think it's he also, may still do it. I think it's important. I, I think you're proud of this wine, and and it shows. You know, there's you you are excited yeah. to present this wine to people and friends, and and, right. and and share it. It's and the story behind that, the 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 way you found the vineyard or experienced the vineyard back in yeah. before I was born to to now to you and me. Right. You know, driving. Well, you were born, but I, I got a lot of trouble spending <laughs> leaving you and Tracy in San Francisco. Another overnight. night in Kelseyville, huh? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell them about your last wrestling in yeah. Kelseyville, okay? 
<laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I, I think I think that's the kind of cool part about it is, you know, you, and, and honestly, I, I know it sat in storage for a decade before you finally figured out what to do with it. Right. It I'm, I'm married to one of the two important women in this office. Yep. <laughs> we had a bunch of, we still have a bunch of these. We, we currently in in the salon here do the Franck de Piede as considered one of our monographs. That's what you'll see the script label across the, uh, the, or the script across the label. And we have another one called uh, Bois Sauvage, which is also 2010. And it was, I, I've never been a big one for imposing too much new oak on, on the wines. And when I started working with uh, the Sugarloaf Mountain Vineyard, it was only three years old, it was third leaf, fourth leaf. I mean, you could have blown, I could have blown that out of the water with one new barrel. It'd just be really careful because Franck, like I said, mm -hmm. is really transparent. It, it'll take on what you bring it. And, and I'm not making mini Claret. That's not my objective. My objective is to make a rock steady Cabernet Franc. You sort of skate on a on the razor blade when you're doing that because you want just enough pyrazine to let them know that it's mm -hmm. there and that it is Franc. Yeah. You want its Franc characteristics, its attributes to show up. Um, and this is where I'm really excited about you know working with Reed because uh, he's now working with the after what five years or six years with the Shannon. He's now kind of overseeing the, the sugar loaf. We do it together still. But what the conundrum is or the question that we ask each other is that if we're going to impose new oak, what's the mm -hmm. benefit or the non-benefit of that? So, so far, I'm really pleased. And unfortunately, they happen to be really geeky, very expensive new barrels. Yeah. <laughs> and Tracy's like shaking her head like, wow, we never saw these before. Well, it's, it's fun because... Um, the, the 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 franc can only handle one or two barrels and so it's like in your in the perfect world what would those barrels be and it's like all right let's go down this rabbit hole and, and okay. choose the perfect barrel and, and a lot of the times i just ask the barrel reps like here's a bottle of our wine you know most people most of the barrel reps in the valley know of laying and reading what it tastes like it's like here's, they know here's a bottle i don't of wine, buy take new barrels but I'm, i yeah. always tell them i'm an important part of the food chain because i buy Spotswood's two-year-olds, I yeah. spot yeah. Schaefer's two-year-olds, you know. And I, I'll give the barrel rep a, yeah, you know, we're working with Carolyn Hugum at, at Hermitage, and it's like, here's a bottle of wine, drink it with dinner in a non-work environment. If we, if you were to contribute one barrel to this program, what would it be? And, and it gets them involved. It gets the people that know what they're talking about with barrels. Um, and it, it makes it a little more close. And I think, you know, it, it make, keeps wine fun, yeah. which is why we started. That's why we're in this business. Yeah, it is. Certainly not to make money. Well, have you thought about with the Chenin Blanc um, trying any concrete? Absolutely. Oh yeah, we yeah. would. I would. If we I was, salivate over concrete. Yeah, if we're essentially we're both kind of in custom crush because mm -hmm. he's working his bases at Elise and I'm at uh, Laird and have been since 2003, yeah. and um, that'd be a really special ask. We, um, we would we would want our own infrastructure. We would want yeah. to not move it. Right. Um, and and. and I think for an egg or two eggs, it would just be more of a hassle than we could than we could put right. the infrastructure in right now. Yeah. If it and, were our winery or we could do it in our garage, absolutely, an egg would be great. It'd be a great third, you know. Yeah. A little bit of new oak component, you know, the, the, the backbone is the, the gently used couple year old barrels that we've used every year. They have they have the same, you know, the, the same flora. the same funk that our yeah. previous vintages had. And then we would have some sort of concrete egg component. We it. always have two barrel two stainless steel barrels too. So we yeah. have we have the oxidative side of the 
ledger going, and then we also have the reductive side of the ledger going with the, the Shenna. Mm -hmm. So, and with those two barrels, one of them is native and one of them is inoculated. So, uh, and they do add, they do really, yeah. they keep they keep the high tone fruit. They're fresh. my least favorite, but in the blend, they make the blend. They yeah. do. Yeah, yeah they're my day. least favorites too. They're yeah. the they're the ones like okay, if we were going to make something to bottle in February and sell in March, it right. tastes like stainless shine. Yeah. You're like, yeah, yeah we do it all yeah. in stainless. It's the whole sum of the whole. Exactly, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah there, there was no. It's it's a crazy concept to think that you're going to use four different, you know, native and three different yeasts every year. The original idea was let's try three yeasts and find out which one we like the mm -hmm. best, and that's the one we'll choose. And then over. The time it's like they actually we can make a better wine by looking at the dynamics and the physics of four or five different fermentations coming together. So it's more like the North Coast, which is four or five vineyards. The Lake County fruit always brought the bright cherry, yeah. uh, the T bar T in, in Sonoma, which is also a 214 clone, brings the spice and then the pepper, uh, more jalapeno than bell pepper. Uh, there's always a little bit of sugar loaf in there that just gives it the you know the base notes and stuff. I love doing. I love doing both of them. This is the game. This is what I was, you know. That's forty-five years of smelling wine. This is what I love doing. This is a kitchen sink thing. It's like, oh boy, I don't like this wine. Let's do this. Yeah. Let's find this barrel. Let's find you know. Let's find a vineyard that really complements what this what and bring this that much forward. And I think you do a good job. I think this also over delivers for the price point. You know, uh, I think it's. I think it's a fun. Fun cap wrong. It tastes the same every year. I don't know how you do it because some years you'll you'll have you know lots of tonnage, and some years it'll be you know calling friends. Looking some years there'll be La Cienega in it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Be respectful of your elders. I was yeah. gonna say. I'll tell you a, an anecdote of it, and then we can do a wrap on this. <laughs> Back in '04, I was really worried because we were Napa Valley, and you know, I the year I started uh, Lang and Reed with Tracy, I was the chairman of the Napa Valley Vendors Association and 96 was not a year to be looking for grapes. <laughs> so I put the flag out of, Hey, I need some Cabernet Franc people. And, uh, Bob Foley calls me from pride and he goes, Hey John, we'd been friends for a long time. He goes, I got some Franc. I said, yeah, top of spring mountain. I, and I've always been a Valley boy. Tr truly. I, I like, I understand mountain fruit, but you know, I also understand shooting bears, you know, it's like some days you got to have it big. Right. And I just thought top of spring mountain. I said, well, okay. Uh, well, where does it lie? And he says, well, you know, it actually lies on the Sonoma side. And I thought, I said, Oh, Bob, I said, you know, I, you know, I don't want to be so parochial to tell you that I can't buy it because it's from Sonoma. I said, but in a month, I'm going to be the chairman of the Napa Valley Vintners Association. My first wine is going to be a Sonoma wine. Yeah, I'm not sure I can do that. <laughs> so we bought fruit in Napa and up until 04. Finally, in 04, we look and say, okay, we're going to have to go. We started to stretch out into Sassoon and, and Lake County and, and default to a North Coast label. And I don't always engage my distributors in a yes or no question, but I had to because they are a very valuable part of our equation. So I asked New York, Chicago, and our broker here, uh, Lucy Malachie, uh here in Northern California, okay, if we went from Napa Valley to North Coast, how would that be? And Lucy said, well, you'll lose all your wine lists because we're very heavy in Napa Valley. And he, she says, you're gonna lose all your wine lists. It'll all have to be retail. And she said, you might have to bring your price down. 
went to Chicago. She says, oh my God, you're just going to get thrown off the list and you're going to have to bring your price down. We were at like 19 or 20, $21 a bottle or something. 20 was the sweet spot. I go to New York and I'm with the Skernick brothers there. They come back and they go, you know, the issue was Napa Valley, North Coast. They said, we don't sell Napa Valley Cabernet Franc. We sell Lang and Reed Cabernet Franc. And he said, year in and year out, we know you get this in different sources, but it always tastes like Lang and Reed. And it has the ethos that you started with, which is what our <laughs> mantra is about. And I don't know exactly how I do it. It's like a rabbit out of my hat some years, but I've been blending since, you know, I moved here. Um, and you get a feel for, oh, this is, tastes very good. And, you know, I did this with Liberty School at Camus. We made Chardonnay, you know, we do huge tanks at a time. We'd buy all this stuff from Christian Brothers that just tasted like white wine, right? Because yeah. it was all stainless steel. Right. And then I'd buy like, you know, uh, Calera's Mistake. <laughs> like about, you know, a thousand gallons to 20,000 gallons mm -hmm. of malolactic uh, fermentation gone wrong, right? And it make it taste like Chardonnay, you know. Yeah. So it's that's the really fun part. That's the art part. Two fourteen is really the fact that it's really incredible ground. So this is our crew. This is our you know Tuesday Wednesday wine. I just wanted to share the story with you. So when I worked for the Benzigers, when they were Glen Ellen, um, they had one guy, and his job was to make Chenin Blanc that they used to get from the central coast or central valley make it taste like chardonnay yeah. because for their proprietors reserve chardonnay that was two for seven you right. know that they yeah. that built glen ellen um it had a huge amount of chenin blanc and, and that was his job was to make yeah. it taste more like chardonnay yeah bruno so. used to come bird dog us all the time yeah. <laughs> well, well you know i i run into a lot of wine drinkers in my job and people for me people that drink cabernet franc are like are like vegans <laughs> which sounds kind of strange but so you mean, they you mean if you're sitting next to one they'll tell you no i mean they're extremely loyal so oh. they have something that they like right. and if you guys decide you're going to switch where you're getting where you're sourcing the fruit from they're going to know that because mm -hmm. they're looking into it right. they're planning their vacation around where they can eat at restaurants but okay. people who love cabernet franc are into cabernet franc and if you happen to change a vineyard source they will find that out, but they yeah. will go, no, we trust these people because we've been drinking their Cabernet Franc. Yeah, that's great. It's a very unique it is a um, set of, of people that drink Cabernet Franc. Yeah. yeah. My boss happens to be one of them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, I, I think what the Skernick said was very kind. And I, I feel the same way is that, you know, Lang and Reed starting, you know, on a whim, however you and mom started, whatever story is, per, uh, you know, percolated through the ages. But I, I think that that North Coast is the North Coast of California is is the flagship we say the 214 oh, yeah. is but this is this is what people love this is what people buy this is the entry-level cab franc to get people on a lifetime of loving cab franc and i I'm, i feel really fortunate now that there's a whole new generation of wine guys you know i look at brock and i look at lou d and i you know they're i'm telling my distributors we can't be the low-cost franc anymore i'm you know i'm getting too yeah. old and i'm in custom crush I can't, I can't do economy of scale on this. So it's going to be this price. If we're it's $29 a bottle. If next year I have to go to 32 because my glass is twice as expensive mm -hmm. and it's, you know, my yeah. corks are three times the juice, the no great, great prices only came down one year and then it bounced higher than it did from the previous year here in Napa and in the North coast. Um, 
I, I can't be the low cost. We can't be the low cost leader with Cabernet Franc. Yeah. And there's a whole new generation doing really cool stuff. Camp is doing it. Then oh, yeah. you've got Taylor Berkeley who's yeah. doing nothing but but um, Chenin Blanc yeah. and Cabernet Franc as well. Um, you know, and I I love it that they're you know they're all trying to do carbonic. I, you know, like there's that old joke. I did that in the '70s and I did not like it. But you know, <laughs> we still do whole berry. You know, I I, I can't bring myself to doing closed cuvee anymore. I blew up a couple tanks over at Laird and it almost got kicked out. Uh, so we get it as close to it, what we can, and but established style, we feel really fortunate that way. And, and I, I always feel good. I always write, if I read a nice review about a new guy doing frog, I write him and I say, hey, send me two balls, I'll send you two of mine. <laughs> and I love engaging with them. I, I think they are appreciative, you know, I'm seeing things happen in Oregon that, you know, they're finally figuring it out. And they've had Franck not up in Willamette. They should try it, but nobody wants to go that cold climate. Right. But down in Rogue and, and uh, down in the south, there's some really bright people starting to work with it. Okay. So there's hope for it. And uh, I, the most biggest question I've been getting from people in the last two or three years is, uh, you know, why is it a thing now? You know, and varietals have their day you know uh and i just think on a rock steady basis that you know franc always has a chance it's never going to be more popular than cabernet sauvignon or chardonnay but we've carved our niche people expect it from us half the people who come here don't know exactly why they're coming here mm-hmm. and the other half come here because they've had lang and reed mm-hmm. and mustards or yeah. girl and the goat in, in chicago or any number of, it's mostly restaurants because we've always been, not that we didn't want to be in retail, but the retail stores don't have Cabernet Franc sections or Chenin Blanc sections regularly. It's yeah. really restaurants that sell our wine. Yeah. And that's why it's always been a food thing. So, Well, let's tell people how to get um, some of the wine. And, 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 and what the experience is coming here. Like how, yeah. how do they find this place and, and, and what do they sign up for? Well, Springhouse is new to us. We've been here a little bit over a year. Um, we have uh, four different rooms. It's a beautiful 1902 Victorian, once, once one block off of Main Street in St. Helena. Uh, we have a couple different venues within the house. The parlor we're sitting in right now kind of overlooks one of the un, one of the busier parts it's, of St. Helena. It's lunch hour right it's now. It's lunch hour. Yeah. We're right across the street from Goose and Gander, so you can sit on the porch at the end of the day and have a glass of wine right before you go to Goose and Gander. Um, we have a beautiful, the front porch, uh, which is a more casual basis. It's not necessarily a Tudor tasting. Uh, the living room is kind of for walking. If you don't have an appointment and you want a glass of wine, we have the library, which we can see up to 10 people. Um, it's a historic old house. It was actually the owned by the Salmina family, uh, from the 1870s. And uh, Batiste and his brother uh, owned Larkmead Winery. So uh, yeah. the history in the house is really pretty. It's a very comfortable spot. Um, if you want to see stainless steel tanks and, and, and barrels, this is not the place. But if you want to yeah, take you... a break before or after lunch in St. Helena, or if the girls want to go shopping and you want to have a glass of wine, uh, we do all of our bookings on talk. We only do three tastings a day. Saturdays, we connect that up a little bit with some walk-ins. Uh, it's a $60 tasting fee. You taste the four main wines, and then you can supplement to taste uh, the monographs after that. 
And there is a food component, right? Yeah, we have a little uh, plate that has uh, two different nuts, two different fruits that that figure into this, and we can also go, we can also do charcuterie plates for people. Wow. Um, you have to check talk. You know, you have different levels that you can what, go to. What is talk? Talk is the reservation system. Okay. Yeah. Talk.com. How would one access that? Talk. T O C K. Langandree.com. Cool. It's T O C K, not T A L K. Okay. Yeah, right. Okay. Just, just asking for somebody who might not know. Yeah, that's true. Right. That's true. <laughs> and then uh, I believe we're still doing some we do, uh, caviar. Yeah, tastings. we do the caviar. This is, it's all, you have to give us a little lead time, but we do a, a caviar supplement with uh, the Chenin Blanc. So you get. Three Chenin Blancs, the two current ones, and then an older release with uh, the beautiful ounce of, is it an ounce? The Sarnicola. Sarnicola, yeah. 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 Nice. It goes well. It does. It goes very well. Yeah. Um, easy to get a hold of if you call the office and it's a, if it's a woman, it's either my mother or my wife. Yep. And if you come if to it, a tasting, it's either me, Tracy, or your wife yeah. or you on Sundays sometimes. Sometimes when I get... Yeah, when I need a break from the kids. Um, <laughs> and uh, you can access our website at Langerie.com. And then uh, you can also walk up and buy wine straight off the front porch you if you can. so desire. Yeah, we deliver to uh, people in Napa. Uh, so if you want it delivered, we will generally be dropping it off. I deliver the wine in Napa. Right. Okay. <laughs> Let's rephrase I do Calistoga. <laughs> <laughs> we got accustomed to it at COVID where we just walk up to the door, put it there, ring the bell, and wait. Yeah. Yeah. Doorbell ditch. Doorbell dishing Doorbell for adults. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, I could see, you know, coming up through um, Napa Valley can be challenging. Yeah. Um, and so these guys know the best way around downtown. And it happens to be driving right past uh, the Spring House. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you guys very much. This has been thank you. This guys. has been great. You're a wealth of information, John. Um, that, was, that was really awesome. So thank you for your time. Yeah. yeah thank you, guys. John, any, That's it. any shout outs? Well, I mean, you guys are out of, you're off. Bart and I are hours tasting. away from yeah. getting on the freeway and heading down to Paso Robles for a hospice to run, which we're very excited Enjoy. about. Get to see a bunch of old friends. Yeah. And, and uh, Brian, have you thought about the wines that you're going to bring with you that aren't Roan wines? I, there's a bottle of the, we're going to, we're, we're not going to share our wine with Sam. So we're going to bring a bottle, <laughs> a bottle of um, Cab Franc um, and then. Uh, but yeah, looking forward to that. When this comes out, we'll be drinking uh, a lot of Roan varietals. Well, well, yeah, pretty much exclusively. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the name. <laughs> yeah. So I think I have some Syrahs from the Rocks District, which I'll be bringing. But other than that, I'm relying on you and Casey Graybell, who's bringing some God Go knows. Casey. Uh, pet Nad. <laughs> Insanity. <laughs> Grenache. Yeah, who knows what the hell we're drinking. <laughs> But we'll be drinking a lot of it. I'm excited. All right, guys. Yeah. All right. We will talk to you next week. And thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you, guys.